baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley and Nick Green. Hello again and welcome to From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley, as always, joined by Nick Green. Another week of baseball talk for you. And we've actually got some games to talk about, finally. That's what we've been waiting on. When we last spoke to you, it was Braves Grapefruit League opener time. They were going to get things going, and now they have just about a week's worth of games under their belts. And a lot of things already happening in Braves camp that are worth monitoring and worth talking about. And that's exactly what we're going to do on this here edition of From the Diamond. But before we get started, I want to welcome Nick Green back in. Nick, we've had a chance to have a little bit of baseball back in our lives. What do you think so far? And are you excited that there's actual baseball games happening, even if the winners don't really win anything in particular? (laughs) You know, this is always the fun time of year. And it seems like every year you're getting to the games quicker and quicker. And I feel like they have a couple days to get ready and all of a sudden you're playing games. So for me as a fan, I love it because I want to see games. I don't really care about them practicing, Uh, but no, this is the time of year. It, it, you have to be excited about it. You want to see where everybody's at, too. See the adjustments people have made. Uh, see the teams, the new guys on the team. So uh, it's fun, and I, I'm excited. Uh, I know these guys are excited to get out there and play as well. Well, I'm sure they've been waiting all winter just to get back to the business of baseball. After you've had those vacations and that fun stuff, you're just kind of ready to get back to normal, if you will. And for baseball players, for the most part, playing a game every day is a pretty normal occurrence. So that's something I'm sure that they're in some way, shape, or form looking forward to, at least in the early going. Nobody wants a long spring training. Nobody wants to spend all their time playing those games that don't necessarily count. At some point, I think you just, after you've got those reps, you're just chomping at the bit and ready to go, kind of like we are each and every week before we get back to the podcast. But speaking of which, make sure you subscribe iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. That's where you can find From the Diamond. Please leave us a rating and a review. We've had a lot of those coming in, and we continue to appreciate those. On social media, Twitter is where we can be found, at from the diamond underscore. That's where the show is. I am at Grant McCauley, and Nick is at NickGreen20. So give all of those accounts a follow if you don't already. And if you do, then thank you. We appreciate that as well. FromTheDiamond.com is where you can find all the articles and every episode of the show. I'll have some new stuff coming there in the next few days and, of course, the weeks ahead as we finally have this game action to discuss and size up what's going on with the Braves and in Grapefruit League play and, of course, across Major League Baseball as we take kind of a broad range, a wider look at everything that's happening in baseball as spring training has kicked off and we've got some action already happening from the diamond. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about. And we'll be talking about a lot of what's going on with the Braves and we'll get to it. We usually start with it, but Nick, I wanted to lead off with something I felt was just a little bit bigger story than exhibition games happening. And that is the Bryce Harper saga finally has reached its conclusion. And it was a big money conclusion for Bryce Harper. We heard about the Philadelphia Phillies wanting to go out and spend stupid money. They did just spend $330 million. It's the biggest multi-year contract ever given when it comes to the total guarantee. 
It's not 10 years. It's 13 years. And they've managed to kind of work Bryce Harper's salary number per year into something that I think is going to be palatable for a long time for them. And then obviously you think about the production and all the things that Bryce Harper brings to the Philadelphia Phillies. That's where he's going to be setting up until about the time that he's 40. Nick, we talked a lot about Bryce Harper. Where is he going to go? How many years is he going to get? How much money is he going to get? We now know the answers to all of those things. Did any of this surprise you? And what are your impressions of this deal in general? Well, it didn't really surprise me after Machado signed for $300 million. You can't, if you're Bryce Harper, you can't sign for less than Manny Machado at 300. So did we expect him to get that? We didn't know because it seemed like the market uh, just really wasn't there throughout the offseason. But now seeing it all come to fruition, did I expect 13 years? Absolutely not. I, I was more in the 10-year range, and I thought that's where he was going to be. I thought he was going to beat uh, Manny Machado's $300 million, but I didn't expect it to be 13 and 330 you expected the Phillies to, to be involved in this thing from the outset, but especially after uh, Manny Machado signed, I thought Philly was probably the landing spot for Bryce Harper. I actually thought it was a better landing spot for Machado, and I thought Bryce Harper would sign somewhere else. But knowing the Phillies and knowing what they said at the beginning of the offseason, they wanted to spend that money. Uh, they sure spent it, and they got a huge bat to lift that offense. I, I think – Bryce Harper is a game changer for sure. And when you have the money to spend, if you can sign a guy like Bryce Harper, uh, it's going to be a, have a huge impact on this club and that lineup. I'm curious to see how the fans receive him and kind of the, see what they expect from him. Because when you sign a big deal like this and you make some comments that Bryce Harper made about Philly, maybe he didn't really want to go there. That wasn't his first choice. Are the fans going to be receptive to him and be on his side, or are they going to say, you know what, this wasn't your first choice. If you don't perform, you got $330 million. We're going to boo you to death and see how you react. Well, that's always an option. <laughs> so it, it should be interesting, though, and I'm just glad it's all said and done. I know Bryce Harper is glad to have it done as well. I'm sure he is. Jeff Passon of ESPN broke down the contract for Bryce Harper. Again, a 13-year deal. He'll be getting just $10 million in 2019, but of course, a nice $20 million signing bonus gets him to that 30. But at no point in this contract is he going to be making $30 million per season. Average annual value of this, which I did not expect to fall below $30 million, is actually right around $25 million, and that doesn't even make him one of the top 10 highest-paid players in the game. And that I did not expect, especially if you told me, well, Bryce Harper's going to sign the record contract, most money ever given out to a player, and he's going to bank over $300 million. I would have thought, man, this guy's going to be making 35 to $40 million a year, perhaps. Not the case. Philadelphia was able to work a few different things out. There's a full no-trade clause in here. There is no opt-out, which I also thought was pretty interesting. But $10 million in 2019 is how the contract starts, plus the $20 million signing bonus then $26 million a year from 2021 to 2028. And then the final three years of the contract are $22 million apiece. That'll be in his mid to late 30s. I think it's the age 36, 37, and 38 season, if I'm not mistaken. If I am, maybe I'm off just a, a little bit. But either way, 13 years is a long time for a contract, Nick. I mean, you played this game 
for what, a little over 13 years, I guess, professionally. Can you imagine signing a contract that was as long as your entire professional career was? I can't, and I can't imagine being wanted to be around that long. <laughs> you know, when when you look at 13 years, that's a big deal. We talked about Machado and Harper, and especially Machado, when you're making a commitment for 10 years, you want to make sure that's the quality type of person you want around the clubhouse for that long. He's not going to create controversy. He's going to go about his business, be a leader, a role model for these younger guys because you're going to go through a lot of different guys over the course of 10 to 13 years. There are going to be a lot of guys that he plays with throughout this contract. So can I imagine that? No, I can't. I, I can't even imagine somebody wanting me for two years, uh, more or less 13. So I, I would thought that it was interesting with it, no opt-out in the contract. Um, but what Scott Boris said was Bryce Harper wanted to sign with a team and stick with that team and show other guys that he wants to be there and allow the team to build around him. And that says something because you don't sign yeah. these big deals without opt-outs now. That just doesn't happen. So kudos to Bryce Harper. Apparently he was – I don't know if it was a formal offer or not, but – the sources said that Dodgers were willing to offer him four years, around $45 million a year, and then he would have been a free agent at 30 That's a big deal, $45 million a year. But when you look at the no opt-out, this is right in line with what Boris said, that he wanted to sign with a team, stick with that team, and, and go through the process with one team throughout the rest of his career. So kudos to Bryce Harper for getting that deal done and having the no opt-out I think is pretty cool too. Uh, just because you don't see that. You knew there was going to be a no-trade clause in there. Uh, there's got to be, especially if he wants to be there uh, for the rest of his career. The money-wise, I'm like you. I thought he was going over $30 million a year. That annual average salary is a big number, but it's not quite as big as we thought or we expect. That's about $5 million off of what I expected. And that's a kind of a big deal, but he wanted the, the record deal as far as guaranteed money. He got it. Yeah, he definitely did. And if you're curious about what the other suitors were looking for, Bob Nightingale of USA Today, he tweeted that Harper's final three offers are the offers from the three finalists. The Dodgers, three years, $135 million, or four years to $168 million. So as Nick said, about 40 to $45 million a year. That's a ton of money. San Francisco Giants, 12 years, $310 million. And then, of course, the Phillies got him at 13 years, $330 million. No opt-out. No deferred money, which that was a big part of what the Nationals were offering, where they offered him 10 years and $300 million, but about a third of that was deferred, and Bryce wouldn't see that money until he was in his early 60s. And he's not going to be like me, and I I don't know about you, but we're planning our retirement a little bit differently, (laughs) so I don't think Bryce Harper needed to go out and buy an annuity. So he's in a different kind of class, but the Phillies with 13 years and $330 million of money that will be paid to him, over the duration of the contract with no deferred money. That's something that took the Nationals out of this derby. And, of course, no opt-out and a full no-trade clause are all part of this. So that's kind of a concession on both sides, where he could be traded. He'd just have to waive his no-trade clause to make that happen. But who is expecting that to happen anytime soon? I can't imagine that it will. Some of the questions that you have from this, obviously, are when you look at what the Philadelphia Phillies did over the course of the winter – if there was a prize or a trophy or whatever you want to call it for winning the winter, then I'd say the Phillies, probably the team that did it because it wasn't just Bryce Harper. Remember, they signed Andrew McCutcheon. They extended Aaron Nola, a guy they already had. They went out and got Gene Segura. 
They got David Robertson as well. I mean, this was a pretty good winter for the Philadelphia Phillies overall after a season which started with a lot of promise in 2018 and really hit the skids in the second half. So they went out and spent some money, stupid or otherwise, and have figured out a way to improve their playoff hopes for 2019 and beyond by bringing in some very talented players to make what was a pretty good Phillies team last year, at least at times, that much better this year and the National League East. How many times have we talked about this? This is going to be a division that's going to be really tough when it comes to figuring out who's going to win. You pretty much just look at the Marlins and say, maybe you guys will sit this one out. But the other four teams, they're going to battle. Don't forget about the Mets either. And I know the Phillies have made a splash. The Nationals are going to be way better than they were last year. Uh, The Mets have made some, I think, impact moves. Uh, Some people might say maybe they overspent for a few guys. But for me, I I think that this division is the best in baseball. There's no doubt about it. When you have four teams as strong as uh, the four top four teams in the NL East are, it's going to be a crazy division. The the bad part about it is that these teams, I think, are going to beat up on each other. So where do they stack up as far as the wild card's concerned? I hope there are a few teams in the National East uh, that are going to the playoffs, and I think they should, if everything works as well as paper shows that it should. The Phillies have made a serious run at this thing as far as an offensive standpoint is concerned. Dave Robinson is a big deal at the back end of the bullpen, but that lineup got way better, and the defense got way better. Gene Segura is legit. Andrew McCutcheon can still play. Real Muto is awesome behind the plate, and they move Reese Hoskins back to first base, and that's a big deal for their defense. So this team, can they pitch is the question mark. When you look at their numbers in the second half, their starters struggled. They ranked 11th in the National League in ERA as a rotation in the second half. Um, They should be able to score a whole lot more runs. I thought this was interesting too. And I mentioned the fact that this lineup has gotten way better. They ranked 21st in baseball in runs last year. Only 677 runs. Atlanta scored 759. And the Red Sox almost beat the Phillies in runs scored by 200 runs. So how much does that offense increase as far as the run production is concerned? I don't know, but they're going to increase a pretty good bit. Uh, So I think they're going to be a whole lot better. And when you spend that kind of money, expectations are pretty high. So I think that there are going to be a lot of people looking at the Phillies and saying if they don't at least get to the playoffs, if they don't at least get past the first round, some people might even say if they don't get to the World Series, it's a failure. And those are some big shoes to fill. So I'm curious to see how all that's going to play out uh, for the Phillies. But this NL East as a whole is going to be extremely fun to watch. When it comes to the National League East, not only did the Philadelphia Phillies take the best player from their rival Nationals by signing Bryce Harper, but of course they traded for JT Romuto, who they've added to the lineup, which is going to be a force. And that's just one of the many ways that the Phillies could be better, but they're just one of, what, four teams in the division that should be at least as good or better than they were last year. Nick, you brought up the New York Mets and what they did, getting Robinson Cano, of course, getting Edwin Diaz. They signed Wilson Ramos as well, so he'll be catching for him. Jed Lowry joins the Mets to give him some flexibility around the infield, and they brought back Juris Familia. And then the Nationals, even though they didn't get Bryce Harper, they spent a ton of money bringing in Patrick Corbin. 
They also went out and got a couple of catchers in Jan Gomes. And, of course, we know about Kurt Suzuki, Anibal Sanchez, another former Brave. They brought in Brian Dozier. I mean, these are quality ads for them as well. Braves did sign Josh Donaldson and Brian McCann early on. They brought back Nick Markakis. But you start to look at the money that was spent. The Braves did not go out and spend anywhere close to the kind of money. And I know the Mets got some salary help from Seattle with Robinson Cano. But either way, it's kind of interesting to see how all these moves were made by the three different clubs that we're talking about here. Or I guess four different clubs that we're talking about here between the Phillies, the Nationals, the Mets, and the Atlanta Braves. A lot of different moves were made Braves felt that they had a strong core. They added what they believed to be a power bat that was missing last year. But there's a lot of questions when it comes to some of the other aspects, and those are some of the things we'll hit as we get a little bit further into this episode of From the Diamond. But I have one more Bryce Harper-related question because I think we've been doing this since, well, probably since both guys came up. Which one would you rather have, Bryce Harper or Mike Trout? That debate has become a little bit one-sided, especially in recent years, Mike Trout is hands down the best player in baseball, maybe one of the best baseball players in the history of the game by the time he's done playing, and he's only a couple of years away from free agency. What do you think Bryce Harper's deal, and maybe to some extent Manny Machado's deal, does for what Mike Trout can be expecting when he hits free agency, if in fact he does, and doesn't for some reason extend with the Angels or end up in some other scenario? Well, I hope this Mike Trout saga doesn't last as long as the Bryce Harper saga. That's what I'm hoping as far as free agency is concerned. Trout's going to be 29, so he's going to be a little bit older than Bryce Harper. I don't think he's going to sign a 13-year deal. People are saying $400 million. I think the only way he gets to $400 million if you go over 10 years, and I don't know if they're going to do that. I'm thinking that you look at Arenado's average annual value at around $32 million on his extension, and I think you, you add to that. I think that there's no way... Trout signs a deal like Harper where he gets the most guaranteed money, but the AAV is not there. I, I think that he deserves to be the top paid player in baseball, period. And how much more does he get than Arenado? I'm saying probably $5 million more. So you, I, I think you're looking at 10 years, 360 to 380. I don't know if 400 is really that realistic, but we'll see. I mean, he's by far way better than all the other guys who are making – a ton of money. So if you look at it that way, 400 is realistic. But for me, I, I don't see 400 being in play unless he goes over 10 years. Yeah, it's going to be quite the saga, I would imagine, when Mike Trout hits free agency, if in fact he does get there. Because remember, the Angels are kind of a wild card in this, no pun intended, because Artie Moreno can spend money if he wants to spend money. He's already proven that. Yeah, he is paying Albert Pujols an awful lot of money. I would imagine that to keep Mike Trout there, the face of his franchise and the best player in baseball, that could be a possibility. But will Trout be open to that kind of thing and not test free agency? Those are some of the questions we'll be asking ourselves for the next couple of years in the lead up to that. But a lot of different factors will play into that. And Nick, as you pointed out, he will be a little bit older. So maybe it's the an the annual salary for Mike Trout that's going to be a little bit bigger deal than the longevity or the length of the Bryce Harper deal, for example. So a lot of stuff will go into baking that particular cake when it is, of course, time to do that. But let's shift our focus and look at a little bit of what's been going on for the Atlanta Braves. And outside of your division rival, the Philadelphia Phillies, adding yet another star player and getting just that much better for the immediate and perhaps a long-term future as well, depending on how everything plays out. 
we've said this time and time again, it, you can make all the moves you want. You can win the winter, but if you don't win during the regular season, then all of that is kind of for naught, and the frustration just multiplies year after year. Be that as it may, for the Braves, they seem to be ahead of schedule. Last year, winning the National League East, nobody expected it. They started to expect it as the year went on. You don't want to tell them about being ahead of schedule. They're right where they want to be. Now they come into 2019 with a target on their back, and they did not make the kind of moves, splashy, big money, crazy moves that the Phillies made, certainly. But they did make some additions when it came to Josh Donaldson, Brian McCann in particular, and then they kind of stood pat. Now, there's still time in these next few weeks to make some moves and do some things, and some not-so-great news, even though it's kind of being downplayed for the time being, the Braves have a quartet of pitchers now that have dealt with early spring arm soreness of some sort. Mike fulton dealing with a little bit of an elbow that's been barking at him. He's going to be, I guess, a little bit behind for the time being. They're going to reassess and just take it easy with him, and hopefully he'll be ready to start on opening day. That has not been ruled out whatsoever. But then you've also got Kevin Gosman's got a sore shoulder as well. Mike Soroka has the shoulder ailment that doesn't seem to leave him alone. And then you've got Luis Gohara, whose shoulder has been barking at him since last year as well. So three guys dealing with a shoulder ailment, and Mike fulton has an elbow that's a little bit sore. Does this make you nervous with only three and a half, four weeks to go before spring training gives way to opening day? It makes me a little nervous, yes. When you look at what's expected of these guys, Fulte, I think, has to be healthy for this rotation to be where it needs to be. You know he's he's the ace of the team. He had a great year last year. Expect him to build on that. He's going to be an open day starter. Mike Fultonevich has to be healthy, bottom line, bar none. His stuff is so good you can legit say he's your number one starter. And when you look at it, I think he's your number one starter by a decent amount. And not saying the other guys aren't good, but I think Fulte's that good. So seeing the elbow barking a little bit with Fulton Evich is a little bit of a concern, especially knowing last year he pitched through some of that elbow soreness. You just hope nothing's serious with that. When you look at his fastball velocity, he was averaging 96 miles an hour on the fastball last year. A huge deal. Uh, the start the other day was 92-94, so you knew something wasn't right. I think he s- said that he could pitch through that if it was a regular season, but you want to be cautious. You want to be careful because he's just that important to the rotation. When you look at the other guys that are injured, Gosman's shoulder, you hope that's nothing serious. Shoulders, are to me, are a big deal. You see Mike Soroka last year, they had to shut him down. He felt... Pretty good in structural league, he says. Said he hurt the shoulder lifting weights. You hope that he can bounce back because we were expecting him to be a big part of the rotation this year. If he's not healthy, now you've got to find somebody else. Tuki Toussaint is another guy who got roughed up his last start. What happens if Tuki, who I think should be in the lead as far as picking up the number five spot in the rotation right now, what if Tuki struggles the rest of the spring? And Soroka's not going to be ready. Gosman's shoulder might be barking a little bit. Fultonevich is sore. Where do you go? And I know Max Freed has a chance to do some big things, and they wouldn't be afraid to put Freed in there in the rotation at all. Uh, he's thrown the ball well so far. But then you start looking at guys that are even younger, less experienced, that have to step up. And when you look at the beginning of spring training, you expect some guys to be sore. 
but I don't expect that many guys to be sore. And when I see shoulder, I get a little concerned. Yeah, shoulder's definitely more of a concern, I think, than elbows typically because the track record of guys that can come back from elbow surgery as opposed to shoulder surgery, if it were to get to that, of course, is something that I think is well-documented. It's a shoulder injury you want to certainly stay away from, avoid, if you're talking about long-term plans of having a major league career that's not derailed for large chunks of time, if not derailed altogether in the case of some pitchers who, you know, like a Mark Mulder, for example. I mean, that was a guy that I thought, when you look back at that Oakland big three, Tim Hudson, Barry Zito, and Mark Mulder, Mulder easily to me, I thought was the best of the bunch. And he did not, it was not able to overcome the shoulder injuries. And that really derailed what I thought was going to be a career that would rival or be better than what Tim Hudson put up over the course of his nearly 20 years in baseball. So these kind of things can happen. I mean, I don't want to put too much into this in the early going. I mean, Brian Snitker did say, and this according to Mark Bowman over at MLB.com and David O'Brien of The Athletic, I mean, the whole media core that's there. You know, Mike Fultonevich would have started during the regular season. He wouldn't have missed any time with this, but they're going to take it easy in spring training. They don't believe that Gosman is anything too incredibly serious, but he's sore because he just kind of started throwing and really ramping up the throwing program, and I get that. Then you can look at Soroka and Gahara and say, well, neither one of them were really promised to be on the opening day roster as it stood, so you don't necessarily worry about that as a team breaks camp and heads north, but when you talk about the long-term plan, Nick, which you touched on, you're thinking about Mike Soroka and Luis Gahara making some kind of contribution, especially if you're going to be mixing and matching some minor league starters in supplementing your rotation and keeping everybody healthy and fresh and giving guys an extra day and that kind of stuff. The way that I look at it, and you brought up Max Freed, he's certainly a guy that I, I don't think I'd be concerned about or worried about giving the opportunity to jump into the rotation and get those innings and you know pick up where somebody else may not be able to go. The other guy I would keep in mind is you asked, you know, where do they go after that, would be Kyle Wright. I think Kyle Wright's probably big league ready, even though he didn't spend a whole ton of time in AAA. This was an advanced college pitcher taken early in the first round a couple of years ago. This guy, I think, is ready to step in and do some things for the Braves if need be, and I don't think he'd back down from that challenge, but it wouldn't be ideal to have Mike Fultonevich, Kevin Gossman, certainly missing any length of time throughout the regular season, and I don't know what that would do for Alex Anthopoulos when it comes to trying to make moves to counteract and deal with that injury because that was one of the many things that, you know, when it came to we need to have some flexibility to make a move, if injury crops up or when injury crops up, what exactly are you going to do to counteract that? Hopefully the Braves don't have to pull that lever before they even really get going in the season. Hopefully these injuries will clear up. And as Brian Snitker said, these will be things you don't have to worry about as far as long-term ailments. They just want to handle them early, give guys plenty of time, and then monitor these things before they get them back out there and ramp them up again. But it's not fun to hear four potential starting pitchers or contributors to your major league team all dealing with some early spring soreness. Uh, and none of them been made to sound like major issues again, but it's not what you love to hear. Something you might love to hear, though, is that Austin Riley is getting himself a lot of playing time over the first week of Grapefruit League play for the Braves. At third base, no reps in the outfield yet. Uh, first couple of games, a bunch of strikeouts. Last few games, though, Austin Riley piling up some hits, drawing some walks, and doing some things for the Braves. I know Josh Donaldson's going to make his Atlanta debut and get into some Grapefruit League action this weekend, but 
I'm really fascinated to see how much playing time, how many at-bats Austin Riley is going to get throughout the rest of the spring because this is a great time to make a big-time impression and let the big league club know that, hey, if you need me, I'm ready. And that's exactly what Austin Riley wants to do, I'm sure. I think you're going to see him get a lot of playing time. And especially, Snicker said that the veteran guys are not going to go on the road trips. If they hold to that, then Austin Riley should be at third base every single time for the most part. Whether he's starting or he's coming in the back end, he should get a couple at-bats a game. You're going to have Camargo go over there. You're going to have Culberson in there. But Riley's a guy that they want to get their eyes on. They want to see where he's at. You signed Josh Donaldson because you think that Austin Riley needs another year in the Meyer Leagues. Well, Riley's ready. In his opinion, he's ready to go. He's ready to contribute at the big league level. If I'm Austin Riley... I'm trying to make every single at-bat count because I want these guys to have no doubt and not even panic at all, pick up that phone if something happens at the big league level and call him up and trust and believe in him that he's going to succeed at the big league level. If Donaldson's healthy, obviously he wouldn't make the team, but you, you want to make a good impression in spring training, and all these at-bats count. Austin Riley is one of those guys they believe in. They want him to be the third baseman of the future. This is the time to show it. And he made the comments earlier in spring. He thinks he's ready to contribute. If he's ready to contribute, the Braves couldn't be happier with the depth. Um, and, and that's what you want to show. You want to, You just want to prove to them, prove to yourself. If something were to come up, if Donaldson wasn't healthy, you know, if you need somebody to fill in every day at third base, that they could call him up and, he would get the job done. So I'm excited to see him continue to uh, get at-bats in spring training. Curious to see him jump into the outfield and see how that goes. I know you don't really want to put a young kid out there learning a new position when he doesn't have his feet wet in general in the batter's box. Uh, so you've got to kind of piece that together and, and put him in when you think he's ready to succeed. Uh, so I'm just curious to see how he does out there. But He's going to get a lot of at-bats, and you know he wants to make a good impression. You mentioned Josh Donaldson, who, of course, is the Braves' big acquisition from the winter. We've talked about him week after week, and I'm sure everybody's ready to see him jump in and, and do some things during the spring and prove that he's healthy and ready to go. Josh Donaldson spent a lot of time training in the offseason to get himself, you know, running-wise, just in a position and in a mode, I guess, where he doesn't have to worry about those calf injuries that have cropped up and that have caused him to miss significant time, particularly in 2018. He's changed a little bit about the way that he's running, about the way that he's striking the ground. That I thought was kind of interesting, how deep of a dive he took into making a change like that. Just It does show, at least to me, how conscientious he is being to make sure that he's leaving, quote-unquote, no stone unturned when it comes to finding ways to be healthy and productive and I think he's already impressing his Braves teammates. I mean, you read any of the articles coming out of Braves spring training, you know, matter who it's from, whether it's you know a Mark Bowman piece or I know David O'Brien of The Athletic just wrote another put out on Thursday night. And you just get the feeling that guys are going to react to what Josh Donaldson means, not only from a power perspective and from the lineup perspective, but also the confidence that he plays the game of baseball with. That's going to be something to monitor and something to really take into account when it comes to his true impact on the Braves team, if healthy, I think he's going to produce. And if healthy and in the lineup every day, I think he's going to be a guy that makes everyone around him that much better. And that, regardless of what you thought about third base being a need or not, that's something that you have to like if you found a way to make your team better. 
and Josh Donaldson could be a pretty significant way to do that. I thought it was interesting too. It, it, they've held him out a little bit longer to work on his form running. And I never really even thought about your form affecting your, your health as far as your calf and all that stuff. There's so much technology now and so much data on, and what works, what keeps guys healthy that this is pretty impressive because you're holding him out just to get him a few more reps as far as his form is concerned and running. And a lot of times when you look at baseball players, you, you look at them and uh, you see, okay, the guy hits and the guy fields. Well, it's a big deal when you run around the bases because you're sitting around for who knows how long on the bench to say 20 minutes. You're in the dugout. You're not hitting. You're sitting on the bench for 20 minutes. Now you've got to come yeah. back in the field. You take a few throws. Maybe you don't have anything go that inning. Now you've sat another, basically another 20 minutes without having to do anything hard. You get back up to the plate, you hit a ball, and you run hard. If you can't stay healthy and your form's not right, you can easily pull muscles. You can get sore. You play 162 games in a year. These things are important. And to see what the Braves are doing as far as being cautious with him and making sure that he stays healthy this year shows you how important he is and what he means to the team and how they want to keep him on the field, whether he plays 130 games or he plays 150 games. They want him on the field as much as possible and to keep him healthy. They're doing everything they can. Uh, I think that I think that's pretty interesting and something I don't know if I've really seen before, but Josh Donaldson's a difference maker. If he's not on the field, then you can't find anybody to pick up this pieces of what he is capable of doing. So I'm excited to see where he goes and, and how he does this year, but keeping him healthy is the most important thing. And, and they know that you aren't going to get production if you're not healthy. Uh, so they're taking it slow with him, uh, but he, you know, he's ready to go. He's shown that he's motivated. He's excited. I just can't wait to see him on a daily basis. I, I think he's just that kind of impact player that I want to watch every time he gets to the plate. No two ways about it, and keeping in mind, and of course you've heard on this podcast and you've probably read everything that was written about Josh Donaldson when he signed with the Braves, and really over the last few years, the only hitter in the American League that was more productive than Josh Donaldson over the last, what, five years was Mike Trout. That's pretty good company to be in. Of course, understandable that he won an MVP award if he's up there with the likes of Mike Trout when it comes to the overall kind of numbers he was putting up as an offensive force in Toronto it's a short-term deal. It's kind of a – I don't know if I want to say a risk for both sides, but it's a it could be a win-win scenario for both sides if things go the way that the Braves and Josh Donaldson want it to go. But it all is predicated on him being healthy and going out and putting up Josh Donaldson-type numbers. So he'll be seeing some action this weekend and getting some Grapefruit League at bats in. Dansby Swanson also is supposed to, I believe, see some action this weekend. That'll be good for the Braves. Shortstop to get back out there get into the mix, and hopefully that wrist is healthy and ready to go and he doesn't have to deal with any lingering effects of that, of course, surgery to clean that up over the offseason. That's something that really, I think, bothered him throughout 2018. A healthy and productive Swanson who takes a step forward with the bat in addition to what he did with the glove last year, that's something else that the Braves are certainly, I think, counting on, if not hoping for at the very least, to see as far as trends that could make the 2019 club even that much better than the 2018 club without making wholesale moves and signing guys to $330 million contracts. 
even though you'd love to see that. It'd excite the fan base, but there's only so many of those players to go around. So we'll see when the next player who wants $300 plus million gets on the market, and I think his name will be Mike Trout. That's a lot of fantasy booking or fantasy baseball, however you want to look at it. So <laughs> be that as it may, when it comes to the uh, the not quite fantasy baseball world of spring training, a few other things that when you look at the Braves club that you are automatically drawn to, and that's the fact that they do have a great farm system. They do have these young players, and many of them, of course, are pitchers. A guy that's, I think, maybe turning some heads in the early going is Kyle Muller. He was taken early in the draft three years ago, along with Joey Wentz and Ian Anderson, of course, was the Braves' top pick in 2016. That's the year all three of those men joined the system. Muller was a big boy then. He's an even bigger boy now, and he can really, really impress you when it comes to his stuff, his pitchability, and, of course, the size. He stands out in the crowd, that's for sure. He's had a couple of good outings for the Braves in the early going. He's a guy I'm keeping an eye on. I'm sure a lot of other folks are. He's, I think, a breakout candidate amongst Braves' prospects for 2019. Nick, as you look at the guys in big league camp, invitees or otherwise, or just minor leaguers you're keeping your eye on, anybody that kind of catches your attention that you're hoping to see kind of show up and show out when it comes to Grapefruit League opportunities, even if they can't make the big league club or won't make the big league club? I'm excited to see Muller pitch more, for one. The Braves took a chance on him. They gave him $2.5 million, I believe. And he was a guy that wasn't uh, where you would think a a $2.5 million pitcher would be. Uh, The fastball velocity wasn't there. All of a sudden now he has projectability, but now the fastball sits in the mid-90s, good slider. I think that if he can work on his curveball and his changeup, if he decides to ditch the changeup, maybe throw a split change or something, I think he's going to make some serious strides. So I'm excited to see him moving from Rome to Mississippi throughout the course of last year. I had a great fall league. He's still only 21. He's going to pitch at 21 all year. So I'm excited to see him pitch in great fruit league action, but also during the year. As far as prospects, uh, other prospects, I love Christian Pache. I, I want to see him do well. I, I think the hype is for real, and he's just going to get better. When you look at young kids that are that talented, that mature, it's almost a disappointment if they don't succeed at 21 years old. And that's not really fair when, when you look at it, but uh, that's where the game's trending, and uh, Pache is still young, and I think he's going to continue to make strides. So I uh, love watching him. When you talk about other guys that are I, – I don't necessarily consider Kyle Wright a true prospect. I know that he is, but I feel like he's big league ready. And so it's hard for me to call him a prospect. Love his stuff. I thought he was really impressive last year. And do you expect him to make the team? Probably not. But what we talked about earlier with some guys nursing some injuries, he could play a big role in, in the uh, bullpen or the rotation. Either one, his stuff plays so well that he could pitch out of the bullpen, he could pitch in the rotation and still have success. So I'm looking at Kyle Wright and seeing what he can do during spring training. The one, not question mark, but one concern is that if he were to have to jump into the rotation, he only threw 138 minor league innings last year. How far do you push him? Uh, Do you give him extra days? Do you let him maybe do what the Dodgers do, let him – go on the disabled list and, and regroup a little bit because this is a long season and he hasn't pitched that much as far as since he's been a pro. So I think that he's going to play a big role when it's all said and done, but uh love watching him. And then if you look at 
just guys on the big league roster that are, that are already there. I, I look at Ozzy Albies, and I'm excited to watch him this spring and see the adjustments that he's possibly made from the left side of the plate. I He's too good to hit 230 from the left side of the plate. And that's what he hit last year. So I just want to see him make adjustments. And we know how good he's could possibly be and how dynamic he can be. So looking at spring training, I have my eyes on Ozzy Albies as far as non-prospects are concerned. There are a lot of things I look at in spring training. Numbers aren't necessarily the first thing. You like to have good numbers, but I, I'm not one of those people that necessarily freaks out after a couple of you know rough games or a slow week or what have you, because come you know that last part of March when opening day is, oddly enough, for a lot of teams now, or at least that first week of April, there tend to be a lot of guys that can kind of flip that switch and turn things on and get things going. So getting into regular season play, the hot start that you're looking for, I think that would go a long way for Ozzy Albies as well. He had it last year, but just in terms of building that confidence, Nick, as you said, and making those adjustments, working hard throughout the offseason, working hard throughout spring training, you'd like to see him come in and start off the way he did last year and not pick up where he left off last year, which was kind of lost from the left side of the plate, having a lot of struggles there, needing to make adjustments, and hopefully those are things that he's been able to do and will benefit him when it comes to 2019. If there's a minor league prospect, a hitting prospect that I'm looking for, I know you mentioned Christian Pache. I can't let him get mentioned without mentioning Drew Waters as well because I think these guys are 1A and 1B when it comes to perhaps the Braves' best position player prospect, at least not named Austin Riley right now. I think Waters is the real deal. I think he's a complete player who's only going to get better, and I'm excited to see as he climbs in the ranks and gets himself perhaps to double A or maybe beyond in 2019, what exactly is he going to be able to do? What kind of numbers is he going to put up? I think he's going to go back to the Florida State League where he didn't hit quite as well as he did in low A Rome, but if he gets off to a hot start there, Mississippi may be a place he's at by the middle of the summer. And once you get there, as we've seen in the past few years, you know, all bets are off. I mean, guys jump from double A to the big leagues. The Braves were kind of notorious for doing it for a while. Whether or not they're in a position where they have to now, that's a whole other question. But I think Drew Waters can pretty much do it all. And I think that his opportunity in big league camp to be around these players and learn and then take that with him into the season as he gets back into the minor league life, I think it's going to be hugely beneficial for him, and he's a guy that I think can put up some big, big numbers this season. I'm excited to see him as well, and uh, he kind of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. I know I know, as far as prospect rankings and stuff, he's up there, uh, but you hear everything about Braves pitching, Austin Riley, Christian Pache, and then you look at Drew Waters, and he's, like you said, he's right there with Pache. Who's going to be better? We don't know. We had this debate a couple – episodes ago but yes he's a guy that he's fun to watch what I just don't know how many at bats he's gonna get that's the problem and when you have a young kid going into big league camp and you get thrown in in the seventh inning and you might get one at bat you're not really seeing what they're capable of doing and it's hard sometimes and they put a lot of pressure on themselves because they want to make a good impression so a lot of times he might when you look at a guy like Waters he might get in 12 games and he might get 12 at-bats. Say he's one for 12 or whatever, and you're looking at it and going, man, I know he's good, but you don't take into consideration what's going on around him uh, as far as trying to make that impression. And those guys shouldn't worry about that, but it's hard not to. Uh, I've been in that situation before. You want to make a good impression, 
And when you have that one at bat or two at bats, you might get one start here and there. Sometimes you press a little bit. And am I excited to see these guys and see what they're capable of? Absolutely. And I think the young guys now are way more mature than when I came up. I just remember my first time in a big league spring training game. I was a nervous wreck. And I hadn't played shortstop in a while. So in like two years, I think it was. And I go over and they put me at shortstop. And so I'm panicking. I don't, I don't even know what's right. going to happen defensively. I don't want the ball. And then I go up the bat and I don't even know how to hit. It's like I forgot how to hit. But these guys are way more mature than I was back then. Um, the one, one thing I wanted to mention too, and we're talking about results and these young guys. And results aren't everything, but I think results are important for some people. Like, for instance, Atuki Toussaint who struggled last time out, I think he needs to get results so that his confidence doesn't go down. If you've been around for a while, you can hit 200 in spring training, and then you're fine because you know what's going on. You know how to prepare for the regular season. You know you're going to be fine. For the young guys, I think it's important for results to be there. Ozzy Albies could be one of those guys that I think he wants to see results left-handed during spring training. And if he doesn't, how does that affect him going into the regular season. I think those are important things too. A lot of times we get lost in the numbers. A guy hits 400 and you're like, oh, wow, he should have made the team. Well, when it comes back to reality, he comes back down to earth, he's going to be what he is and what the back of his baseball card says for the most part. So uh, I think that's something you look at as well, especially with young guys. You want some results there. If the numbers are just crazy as far as pitcher's ERA through the roof or hitter hitting 100, you don't know how that's going to affect their confidence going into the season. But when you look at a guy like Drew Waters or Pache or whatever, who's not going to get that many at-bats in spring training, you don't necessarily look at the numbers. You just look at what they are and what their baseball card says, and uh, we get excited about what they're going to be. And there are a lot of guys that I think are going to be great and a lot of guys to look forward to seeing in spring training and during the regular season. Of course, things are going to crank up on those backfields down in Disney as the Braves minor leaguers will begin their portion of spring training. So Christian Pache, Drew Waters, guys like that may not be getting a ton of at-bats in the big league games, but they may be, you know, what I guess is lovingly called the fence jumper. That's what um, Brian Snitker called Ronald Acuna a couple of years ago. He said <laughs> he almost made the team as a fence jumper and I would have taken him north if I had my choice. So if somebody can make that kind of impression, that would be a, a pretty nice way to start your year, even if you don't get to make the team. And I'm sure these guys want to just make the most of the opportunity to play with some of these names, some of these big league names. And of course, being around big league camp in that clubhouse as well, that's a big deal for some of these guys just to start to get acclimated with the life of a major league baseball player. Because of course, you know, as we talk about numbers and everything else, these guys have dreams. They aspire to be big leaguers and this is kind of their first taste of that. So cool to see them get that opportunity either way, especially for a guy like Waters. I know Pache has been around and was in big league camp a good bit last year and played in the Futures game, did things like that. But whether or not they head back to the minors for a long period of time or whether they rock it back to Atlanta because they put up such good numbers, that's kind of the fun of the minor league season is you watch what these prospects can do. And the Braves have an awful lot of prospects to talk about. And there'll be an awful lot of spring training to talk about over the next month or so as the Braves lead up to opening day at the end of March. Other Major League Baseball happenings, things going on, some notes here. I wanted to get your opinion on because I know I have my opinions about these things. A couple of 
considerations that Major League Baseball has as they go towards the next collective bargaining agreement, obviously, because they'll have to work in some of these things with the players union and whatnot. Changes to the game in particular. We'll stick with that as opposed to the economics factor, which would probably be an entirely different podcast, which would last well over an hour. But be that as it may, pitch clock. We've been hearing those two words a lot over the last couple of years. Minor League Baseball has instituted a pitch clock, and I'm sure that Major League Baseball has collected all that data and believes that it's worth getting into. Not going to happen in 2019 over the next couple of years, perhaps, depending on how all of that shakes out and how all of that's negotiated. But Nick, you and I have both seen this in the minors. Do you like the pitch clock, and do you think it makes a difference? I actually do, and I think it makes a difference. I think two ways it makes a difference. One is the game, if they abide by it, and the umpires enforce it, which is not always the case. I've seen so many times they just wipe the clock off and just move on. And I feel like the umpires are a little bit hesitant to call a ball, and they shouldn't be. That's just part of the rules. You've got to get these guys working quicker. The first year in the minor leagues that they implemented the pitch clock, the games, they ha- I think they were like two hours and 40 minutes, something like that. Minor league games don't have the TV two minutes and 20 seconds or whatever, the, the TV commercial breaks. So it's going to be longer in the big leagues. But when you looked at the game and how fast it moved, it was just a better pace. And as a defender, I think it worked well too because you aren't sitting there waiting for the guy to get the sign, waiting for him to get on the mound, and you're on your heels. I think the pitch clock is important. I think they need to implement that. Um, there are a lot of other things that I don't know if they should implement or not, but I think the pitch clock is one that would help everybody. A lot of times, and you'll hear Tom Glavin talk about this too, uh, some pitchers want to mull over their decision a little bit longer than others, but Glavin says when you get into rhythm as a pitcher and you get into a flow, the quicker you work, the better. And that's what I like to see. Max Scherzer's one that's on the mound ready to go as soon as he gets the ball. There are a lot of guys that will sit there and and decide, okay, I'm going to shake this guy off and I'm going to make him think about it. Like I go through five signs and and I go back to sign number one. Get the sign and get on the mound and go. And I think that helps everybody out. And it's frustrating because they're playing a game with you. And I, I can't count how many times I've been in the field and they call a fastball away first pitch. Pitcher shakes it off. Well, the catcher goes through four other signs because he doesn't know what the pitcher wants. They step off and the batter calls timeout. They get back in the box and they call fastball away. He says, yeah, that's the pitch I want. Well, that's the pitch we called 20 seconds ago. Just throw the pitch. So – I think the pitch clock can be valuable, and I think it needs to be implemented. Yeah, I don't have a problem with it at all. I, I don't know that it's going to really save you a ton of time, and I think that that's why it kind of dovetails into, and I didn't even throw this on our rundown, but I'm sure it's something you probably looked at and you mentioned it as well, the between-innings breaks or the commercial breaks, which occur pitching changes between innings and anytime play is stopped and you know television's making some money, which, of course, I think Major League Baseball and all the teams like to do, they're talking about shortening those too. That would certainly have an effect. A pitch clock would have an effect. And it's kind of about the evolution of the game. I don't want to overcook things when it comes to trying to fix something that's not broken. But I do think that baseball just needs to be mindful of the fact that, you know, people look at their time a lot differently in 2018 than they did in 
2008, 1998, 78, 68, and and you know how this is going to go all the way back to even years <laughs> that don't end in eight. There are just differences in the way society looks at things, especially when it comes to sports and entertainment and and what your dollar can buy you and what your time can be spent on. And baseball is competing not just with every other major sport, but every form of entertainment that's out there as well. So it is about the product. And I do like the fact that they're looking at this, thinking about this, trying to figure out ways to make it better. I just don't want to see things that kind of go against the natural flow of the game, the gamesmanship that's involved in strategy and things of that nature. That's why I'm not really big on saying, hey, let's ban the shifts. Let's take that out. Let's not let teams do that. And the other thing that I did throw on the list of stuff to talk about, three batter minimum for relievers. I don't know what the answer is to how you maybe try to navigate a little bit differently in the later innings or or whatnot when it comes to just how many relievers are used and the fact that the complete game is really no longer a thing in Major League Baseball. I don't know how to answer all that or if there is an answer or a happy medium or whatnot, but I don't love putting a, a minimum on how many hitters a reliever has to face because, you know, they're lefty specialists for a reason. They're guys that come in to try to get that double play ground ball for a reason. I don't really have a problem with pitching changes. I don't love half a dozen on both sides every night, but that wasn't a thing until starting pitchers are no longer are expected to go seven, eight, nine innings every fifth day. It's kind of crazy the way the game's evolved, but what do you think? Is there an answer to this? And is that something that you even like to be considered? I actually would like a two batter minimum. Okay. I think three is a little excessive. The and it's kind of I might be contradicting myself a little bit because I've been an advocate of no DH because it kind of takes out the utility guy, which I was. Right. And also when you're looking at National League American League, I love playing National League because I could kind of play with it the manager and kind of see where you're going and possibly get ready and, and get in certain spots. Is a reliever I know you would probably do away with the lefty specialist, but there are so many times nowadays that managers and teams go strictly based on stats and data. So they're going to say, okay, here's what you have to do. As soon as they put this lefty in, you're going to face lefty, lefty. Well, the next one, you've got to make a change. And this lefty cannot get this righty out. Well, you know what? They need to figure out how to get a righty out and What's interesting to me, too, is how the splits have reversed over the years. If you look at the Braves pitchers from last year, a lot of their lefties had trouble getting lefties out and not righties. So I I just think that the way data shifted, I think this would help out a little bit with time. And I think you'd see, obviously, you wouldn't see the the lefty-lefty matchup or whatever. But I kind of like the idea of having a minimum of two batters. I think three is a little excessive. But I think that two could make some sort of an impact. I do think it could. And it's not that I don't want to think about the possibility of putting some kind of, uh, and I don't know, restraints or rules or regulations in how a manager uses his bullpen. But nothing's going to take us back to bygone eras of guys throwing complete games six, ten times a year. That was happening not too long ago with a guy like Roy Halladay, but not with too many other pitchers. I mean, Mike Fultonevich threw, what, one shutout last year, and he tied for the National League lead when it came to that. I think he threw two complete games, and he was way up there as well. So those are things that you could look at guys from the 1980s or 1990s that 
you may not even remember anymore that we're completing five or six, maybe seven starts per year because that was just the thing that you did. So it's an optics thing in terms of if you're a fan who's grown up and watched baseball for a long time, that maybe it's a little bit off-putting to see how much the bullpen has now become a factor. But from the analytics and the stats-driven side of things and matchups and all of the things that are involved in you know playing the game as smart as you can, there's merit in these matchups. There are obvious numbers that work, but larger sample sizes over more periods of time, I wonder if it'll kind of swing back again and tell us that you don't necessarily have to go to the matchup every single time. Maybe it just depends on who exactly your personnel is and how much you believe on that particular guy in that particular matchup. And for some, I'm sure it's already like that. But I guess I just go back and look at two things that have happened in Major League Baseball that kind of led to the bullpen, matchups, analytics, statistics, research, all of that, the data that's driving the game, but also arm injuries. I think that's a big reason why you just don't see starting pitchers expected to throw 225, 250 or more innings in a year anymore because you don't want to wear them out. You don't want to break them. I mean, you can look at Steven Strasburg, I think, is a, a kind of an example, maybe a poster child for that. Kerry Wood, Mark Pryor, there are a lot of talented pitchers that sometimes you wonder if overuse was a factor on them and if that kind of changed the thinking in baseball when it comes to just how starting pitchers are used and what the expectations are. It's kind of crazy to think that it's changed that much in the last couple of decades. It is crazy. And when you look at – I'm starting to get more on board with new age baseball, new era baseball, because you kind of have to. You can't sit there and say, okay, it was like this 10 years ago. It should still be like this. We have to continue to evolve. And that's one of the reasons that I'm more okay with some of these rule changes, not changing the game or whatever. But when you're looking at starting pitchers, they're not going to go – seven, eight, nine innings every time out. That's just not going to happen. So you're going to see a bunch of guys coming out of the bullpen. Uh, you're going to see a ton of relievers throughout the course of the year, and a lot of them are going to throw 70 appearances a year, and that's just how it's going to be. When you look at the two, three batter minimum, whatever, they if they even decide to do that, I just think that there has to be some speed up uh, as far as the game's concerned because you are getting the starting pitcher out so early in the game. So you're going to continue to go through reliever after reliever after reliever. When you're looking at three relievers a game, possibly four, uh, because you're looking at matchups and different things, you've got to find some way to speed it up because the starting pitching is not going to change. The starters are important. They feel like you can piece together the back end of the game. If a starter can give you five and a third, five and two thirds, it seems like teams are okay with that. And that's what we have to start being okay with because – us complaining or us debating about it isn't going to change what's going to happen. I've heard that. These guys, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. And so we have to adjust as well. And I think that when you look at trying to speed the game up, the pitch clock, the three batter minimum, two batter minimum, whatever, could help in any way that you can help speed the game up. As you mentioned, people now don't want to spend their time without seeing action. And so you've got to try to speed up somehow. Uh, but we aren't going to be able to change the starting pitching situation. I think it's it's here to stay for a long time. You might have some guys here and there will be able to give you seven, eight innings, but not often. No, it doesn't seem like it's going to be reversing course and going back to guys throwing the kind of workloads that you might have been accustomed to if you grew up watching baseball 
in the 90s, the 80s, or before, especially when there were so many pitchers that were throwing 250 or more innings. I mean, it just starts to make, when you turn over a Nolan Ryan baseball card, to kind of use your analogy from earlier, the back of the baseball card, what does it tell you? Well, it tells you Nolan Ryan could throw 300-plus innings a year for a long time in his career, and he never broke down. But he's absolutely a freak of nature, and he is the exception and not the rule. But when it comes to speeding things up, I think we need to speed up and get to the end of this podcast, which has been a fun episode. I enjoyed talking about, of course, Bryce Harper finally finding a home, what's going on with the Braves, even though some injury news kind of makes you a little bit nervous in the early going, but hopefully guys are going to be able to work through some of that soreness and be ready to resume their regular baseball activities sooner than later. We'll, of course, monitor all of that, and you can find more info on all of the goings-on when it comes to Braves spring training and otherwise over at FromTheDiamond.com. And I invite you to subscribe to the podcast if you like what you heard iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher is where you can find it. Nick, I enjoyed our trip through Major League Baseball and talking about all the things that are going on, and I say we do it again next week. Absolutely. All right. Well, I look forward to it, Nick. I hope that you have a wonderful weekend, and you know, if you want to watch a little baseball, now is the time that you can do that. So you can throw that on your calendar if you decide that you know, you've had enough of whatever's on TV a lot of options now. We didn't have too many options this time about a week and a half ago. I'm watching MLB Network all the time. I'd love to watch all these games. There are a lot of young players in the game of baseball that are worth watching. Uh, so if you can get your eyes on any of those games, it's, it should be a treat. Well, I know that's what I'm planning on doing, and this episode was a treat. Appreciate it as always. And for Nick Green, I'm Grant McCauley. This is From the Diamond, and we will catch you next week. So long, everyone. So long, everyone.